Hello, and welcome to the PCF Bible Talk Podcast. My name is Anna, and I'm here today with my colleagues. Hello, I'm Sky. Hi, I'm Sam. We're so excited that Sam gets to join us today. She's an intern with PCF, and we're really excited to hear her thoughts. We're missing Brenea this week. She's on a break, but we'll be back with us soon. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, today is Lesson 7, and we're going to talk about the people of Israel in Egypt and eventually how they leave Egypt, though that we don't get to that part today. But this is our first big jump in scripture. If you have been following along with the Bible study, the end of lesson six, we left Abraham and Sarah. They had just had a son, Isaac. God had given Abraham these very strong and amazing covenant promises. And we just had this little nuclear family unit that we were dealing with. But now we're skipping about mm, 30 chapters of scripture. And a lot happens to the family of Abraham and this family that God has made this promise to. But helpfully, the beginning of the book of Exodus does begin with a bit of a summary. So Sam is going to read that for us, and then I'll explain it a little bit more. So Sam, can you read Exodus 1, verses 1 through 6? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Great. Thanks so much, Sam. So we are following this family of Abraham, but now we're a couple of generations down. So Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. And then if we had read more chapters in Genesis, we would have seen that Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob is the one mentioned here. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. An important thing to understand this passage is that Jacob and Israel at this point are the same person with two different names, um, Israel and Jacob. Are, is his name. And then Jacob has 12 sons, which are listed here. Thanks for reading their names, Sam. They're weird, <laughs> kind of weird names to us. But if you ever listen to uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which is a musical based on the life of Joseph, you'll hear their names. That's a good way to memorize them. Um, maybe, maybe no one knows what I'm talking about, but there's a song with all the 12 sons of Jacob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And in the second half of the book of Genesis, we saw the drama of those sons and how one of those sons named Joseph ended up in Egypt through a crazy set of circumstances. And then because he was in Egypt, his whole family moved to Egypt with him and they all settled down in Egypt, which was fine, except that Egypt is not the land that God had promised to Abraham. God had promised Abraham the land of Canaan. But now Abraham's descendants are all in Egypt and they are growing as a family. As a family does, it multiplies exponentially. So they had lots of kids and they increased as a people and they grew into like a little nation. But it's a little nation in the context of Egypt. So that's where we are at this point in the story. 
All right. So now what is happening to this extended family of Israel, these generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their grandchildren, great-grandchildren in Egypt? Let's continue reading in Exodus to find out what's happening to them in Egypt. So Scott, Scott, you read verses 8 through 14 of chapter 1. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So actually, since the life of Jacob slash Israel, we've now had centuries pass. We learn from other texts that the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. So centuries have passed. This group has grown. And what is the situation of the people of Israel that's described in this passage? What did you guys see? It seems like they're really viewed as a threat by the Egyptians. Like The Egyptians have a lot of fear. Um, and so the Israelites are viewed more um, or less as a positive presence in the country. Um, so now the Egyptians are beginning to oppress them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on that oppression, um, just some of the language we see from the text says that the people were afflicted with heavy burdens. Um, and the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard service. So the people are, yeah, they're being oppressed. They're kind of living in misery in a sense. Um, And this is kind of where the whole group, the whole people of Israel are right now. Yeah, that's right. And then we're going to keep reading and we're going to find that it it sort of gets worse. So not only are they in slavery and under these hard taskmasters, but the Egyptian pharaoh is not quite satisfied with that. So Sam is going to read verses 15 through 22. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. All right. So Pharaoh doesn't think it's enough now that the people are enslaved. He takes on this sort of population control measure, but it's also trying to prevent Israel from having military strength because the boys would grow into men who could fight in the military or to rise up against Egypt in revolt and were much more likely to have armed violence 
Um, so he wanted to kill the boys, but allowed the girls to live so that they could give birth to more slaves. Um, he didn't want to totally destroy the population of Israel because this was these were his slaves and he mm-hmm. wanted to have slaves. So this was the method he came up with. But um, the midwives did not cooperate uh, in this telling of the story. So what strikes you guys in this in this story, part of the story? Yeah, well, what really strikes me um, about this is the Hebrew midwives, um, these women that we have, and we have two of them named, um, Shipra and Pua. Um, and we're given their name, which is always just, I always love when you have names in scripture, because it's like, these are real people. Um, and mm-hmm. scripture records their name um, of these two women who um, go against Pharaoh, and God blesses them. Um, God deals well with them. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. So it's just incredible to see like that in scripture, we have these two women's names. Um, they are named. They are these specific people. Um, but Pharaoh, we, we don't know who he is, um, even though he was the leader of Egypt, this powerful mm-hmm. nation. Um, so it just kind of shows us how kind of what human nature records Um, Mm -hmm. uh, what human sees as power is not necessarily what God records and what God sees as important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Sky. Uh, Also, on a side note, I would just say one of the reasons that historians have difficulty dating uh, Israelites being slaves in Egypt and ultimately leaving Egypt is because the Pharaoh's names are not recorded here. And so it is harder to line them up with um, specific pharaohs that we know of in history. And it's actually quite an interesting and fascinating discussion and also related to our knowledge of archaeology. It's not something we're going to go into, the dating of the Exodus in this podcast, but I will put a YouTube lecture link in the podcast notes uh, for a lecture from an e- Egyptologist and archaeologist named James Hoffmeyer, um, which is a really fascinating lecture if you're interested in archaeology and in dating, I really recommend it. It's worth watching. Maybe when you are in a lull in your other work and have time to watch an hour and a half lecture on archaeology and dating, but I do recommend it. Um, yeah, so the way God remembers history is not always the way that we remember history or the people that we know. Okay, so Pharaoh's plan is kind of foiled. He tries to sort of go by the midwives and just be like, well, anyone who sees a Hebrew baby should just, a baby boy should just throw it into the river. And now what's going to happen next? So what is God going to do in this situation? What's happening with this promise? You know, the people of Israel are stuck as slaves. How is God going to take action on behalf of his people? That's what we're waiting for in the text. And what we see next is a new character introduced to the story. And Sky, can you read us about this new character, reading Exodus 2, 1 through 10? Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitmen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. All right, this is a very dramatic scene. Again, any Prince of Egypt fans out there, uh, a baby in a basket in the river discovered by a princess and adopted into the palace. Um, This is just a dramatic introduction of the character of Moses. But it also tells us something important about Moses. So, Sam, what do you see as the importance of this sort of birth story and the position that Moses has been put in? Oh, I mean, looking ahead, we can we we know that God has great plans for Moses and his life, um, but it's not revealed yet at this point, and so it seems um, a little confusing. Um, but we see that placing Moses uh, so early into his life into Pharaoh's home and under um, his care uh, will allow Moses to not only become a citizen of Egypt. Um, but also be an adopted son of the king and gain all of these rights and privileges. So one of these privileges, I guess, would have been an outstanding education uh, where Moses would have learned many different languages and just have been really equipped to become a future leader of the Israelite nation. Right. So we have Moses growing up in two worlds. He is a Hebrew by ethnicity, but he's an Egyptian by adoption and training. And so what is Moses going to do when he sees the tensions between these two identities, between these two people groups? Obviously, these two people groups are not really living in harmony. What is Moses going to do in his life when he sees that? And we get some of that in the text in verses 11 through 15. Uh, Sam, can you read that for us? Mm -hmm. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Okay, so that didn't go so well. (laughs) (laughs) So as we were saying, it looks like Moses is a perfect person to take over. He has like, or to lead the people of Israel, he has this Egyptian clout, but then his Hebrew identity. He's like this young guy who seems to have a lot of power and and interest in the Hebrew people. So this is going to go well, but it doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. Um, First, he murders this Egyptian and that just becomes something that haunts him. He becomes a wanted man and he has to flee. And also he tries to start to mediate between the Hebrews and be like a leader and resolve conflicts. And they totally reject him and are like, who are you? (laughs) Who made you prince and judge over us? So that apparently didn't work. So Moses runs off the scene and he's in the land of Midian. And we're left with the question again, what is God going to do for the people of Israel? Is he going to solve this problem through an armed revolt? 
what which could be a solution, but probably not. And Sky, what are some reasons why an armed revolt was unlikely to work for the nation of Israel? Yeah, I don't think an armed revolt's going to work. Um, because even though you think, yeah, that could be an option, but thinking about like the context, thinking about where the people are, um, an armed revolt is pretty much impossible on a human level um, because the Israelites are in slavery. Um, they are being overworked, um, which means they're also kind of going with that. They're undernourished, overworked, like I said. Um, so they don't really even have the strength to stand up and fight. Um, and even if they did have the strength, they don't have weapons. Um, they're not trained to fight. They have no experience in fighting. Um, they're not organized into a militia or into an army of any sorts. Um, and they'd be going up against Egypt. And the Egyptian army was one of the biggest and strongest in the world. Um, so, yeah, I don't think an armed revolt's going to work uh, with these people at this time. Okay, so option number one for freedom, armed revolt. Very unlikely nope. to work. <laughs> another human option for deliverance would be that another nation could come in and defeat Egypt and set the Israelites free. But Sam, what's problematic with that idea? Um, so first, Egypt is a regional superpower and probably really intimidating. Um, and also the next kind of strongest region in the area, the, the Hittites and the Hittite army would have had to cross the entire Sinai desert and thus also become very undernourished and exhausted like the Israelites and then have to fight the Egyptians. Um, and it's also not at all clear that this other conquering nation would actually end up freeing any of the Israelite slaves. They might just take over as new or worse oppressors. Yeah. So if the Israelites are looking for salvation, looking to another nation to come save them was not a probable option that was going to lead mm -hmm. to flourishing of the nation of Israel. War tends to just destroy those in its path and continue to impress slaves and is not usually an instrument of huge freedom and liberation for those already in slavery. We're left with this cliffhanger. What is God going to do? How is God going to keep his covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants to make them a great nation that kings would come from them, that they would dwell in the land of promise, which was the land of Canaan. None of those things seem to be happening right now. So how is God going to do this? We're going to close part one of this podcast today, and we're going to take up this question again in part two. But we hope that you will listen to the rest of the story with us in part two, and you will hear how God starts to develop his own plan of salvation that is different from these human solutions that might have occurred to Moses or to others at the time. So thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you to Sam and Skye. It's been great to be with you and God bless.